I, I think of when we arrive in heaven sometimes. I, I hear people say, oh, it's going to be wonderful when we're in heaven. We're going to see all the special music and stuff like that. I think heaven is going to be wonderful for many reasons, but I look forward to the, to the congregational singing. I remember being at, I forget what they call it now, when I was younger it was Cops Coliseum in Hamilton, and uh, there was something like 14,000, 15,000 people in it, and we were singing hymns together. And just to hear that many voices lifted up in praise of God and and in honor of Christ was something else. Very much enjoyed it. And I look forward to heaven to be able to... Actually, I look forward to heaven because I'm told I'll be able to actually sing. And I know some of you can sympathize with me. Um, But just to hear the voices together as we praise our Lord. So last time together, um, we were uh, meeting. We were talking about Friday... Uh, before the Passover, which was covered in Luke 19, 1 through 27. And I trust that you did your homework and you read that chapter last week. Uh, The passage there speaks of and relates to us the encounter between Jesus and Zacchaeus. And it relates Zacchaeus' salvation. And then Jesus begins to travel from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And while he was traveling, he he leaves before the start of the Sabbath. And while he was traveling with those around him, he conveys the parable of the ten minus. And the ten minus, that parable is fundamental in our understanding of this concept that God's kingdom is here, but not yet. That Christ reigns in our hearts And we benefit from Christ's reign in our hearts and we benefit from being part of His kingdom. But, and however, this is a large but or a large however, the physical kingdom, Christ's physical kingdom, has not arrived. We still wait for that literal thousand-year reign. The parable also teaches us what disciples are to do in that waiting period. That we are to use our gifts and our talents and our resources to reach others for Christ. To build each other up. To work and walk with other, one another and to use them to encourage each other in our perseverance and in our walk with Christ. See, we use our resources to invest in the kingdom to come, to invest in each other. And we wait. And we wait together for the return of our King, for the return of Jesus Christ. Then on Saturday evening, when He arrived in Bethany, a dinner was held in His honor. It was held in his honor, likely a a thank you, a thank you for bringing Lazarus back from the dead. And then on Sunday morning, Jesus made his way from from his way from Bethany to Jerusalem. And along the way, he picks up a young foal and he rides that young foal triumphantly into the city. And as he made his way to the city, And he could see the city in front of him. Jesus weeps. He weeps for the people. 
He weeps for the fact that they don't understand what's taking place. Among the hosannas and among the palm branches and the coats laying before him, Christ weeps. Eventually, he makes his way to the temple where he briefly looks around. And then he leaves the city and he journeys back to Bethany. And this is where we pick him up on our journey with Christ to the cross in Bethany on Monday morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your goodness in our lives. First of all, for our salvation in Jesus Christ. And as we journey this, these passages looking forward to Resurrection Sunday, I pray that you'll help us to see them afresh and anew. That we'll see the events that took place and understand the price that you paid for our salvation. That we can see the response of the Jewish and religious leaders in the population and examine our own hearts to see if sometimes we do not respond the same way. Father, may you be glorified this morning. May you push aside our thoughts from the past week and the week to come to focus in on your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, the events of Monday and Tuesday of the Passion Week can be found in Luke chapter 19. They can also be found in Matthew 21. But we're going to focus our attention this morning on the Gospel of Mark. See, Luke, for some reason, omits the cursing of the fig tree, which we'll talk about this morning. And, and Matthew is not always concerned with chronology. In Matthew chapters 1 through 4, it's a chronological account. Then in chapters 5 through 13, it's more topical. Then he returns in chapter 14 through 28 to mostly chronological. We have an issue with Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 and 19, which is part of what we're going to talk about this morning, where we believe that it's out of chronological order. So we're going to spend our time, and if you'll turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 11, we're going to spend our time in the Gospel of Mark. And you'll recall last week that I said that the, the walk from Bethany, so if he's in Bethany and his walk up to Jerusalem is just a mere 40 minutes, and he's going to do that walk back and forth between the two destinations a number of times over the Passion Week. And, and where we find him this morning is early on Monday morning, and he's on that road once again traveling to Bethany, or traveling to Jerusalem from Bethany. I also want to draw your attention to the structure that we're going to find this morning in our passages in Mark chapter 11. Think of it like a sandwich. So we have our, our first slice of bread, and that's going to be the cursing of the fig tree. Then the meat of the sandwich, or for our vegetarian friends, the filling of the sandwich is going to be the cleansing of the temple. And then there's going to be another part of that sandwich. That's going to be the explanation he's going to give about the fig tree. And what's a good sandwich without a special sauce of some sort? And our special sauce this morning for this sandwich 
is a flavor of judgment. A flavor of judgment. So if you're not there already, Mark chapter 11, let's start with the first verse 12, 13, and 14 of Mark chapter 11. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Jesus was. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So, while walking along, and we know this was early April, late March, walking along, he spots a fig tree. And he looks at the fig tree, and it's unusual to see it in full leaf that early in April. See, fig trees would blossom sometime in February and March, but by early April, the time of the Passover, the leaves would just start to fill out. And it was surely too early to really find figs. The main harvest or the first harvest of figs would not be until June. So we're given a hint here, though, what's going on. If we were to look down to verse 13, you'll see this word, if. And in the Greek, that word translated, if, signifies Jesus was looking for figs, but there was a real unlikely possibility that they would be there. It would sort of been, he was walking along and he saw the fig tree and he was hungry and he thought, well, that's unusual, it's full leaf, maybe there's some on it but he wasn't expecting anything. And he looks, and there's none. But he looked, perhaps maybe he'd find some. In finding none, he he looks at the fig tree, and, and he curses it. Verse 14, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, Jesus wasn't particularly talking to anyone. He was just kind of disappointed that there was nothing on the tree at that moment. And he simply cursed the tree and he moved on, saying nothing to his disciples. But, but why curse the tree? Well, in, in prophetic literature, the fig tree has long been used as a metaphor, not only for Israel, but it's a metaphor of repentance in a time of judgment. So the fruit of repentance, one might say. So, so this encounter serves as an illustration for us. In the illustration of what was happening in Israel at that time. Jesus looked for figs on the tree and there was none. Jesus looks for the fruit of repentance in Israel. And none can be found. What did Jesus find? Well, one commentator put it nicely. This is what Christ found. Bustling religious activity, but no sincerity and truth. Tremendous promise, but a very poor performance. See, it's a physical picture for us when he curses the tree. It pictures for us the words from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. And when Jesus enters Jerusalem and he enters the temple, this is exactly 
what he finds. Look with me to verses 15 through 19 of Mark 11. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple. And he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have turned it into a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. See, the first time Jesus cleansed the temple was at the beginning of his ministry three years earlier. Also at a time when he was attending Passover. He found temple abuse then just as he does now. I want you to write down this somewhere or put it in your memory or go review the tape later. But I want you to write down John chapter 2 verses 13 through 17. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. I told you there'd be homework this, uh, this series. John chapter 2, 13 through 17, and Psalm 69. I want you to read about the first cleansing in the book of John, in the Gospel of John, and they quote Psalm 69. That's why I want you to read through that one. So the priests in the temple had this really good gig going for themselves. See, And they had no intention of giving it up without a fight. That's why they were angry. Outside the main temple area were the Gentile courts, where Gentiles could come in and and they could worship. But this Gentile court meant for prayer was full of profiteers. And profiteers that were endorsed by the priests. So rather than risk the rejection of an animal that you might bring from home, one could buy a pre-approved sacrifice from the vendors in the Gentile courts. Acceptance guaranteed, but all at inflated prices. I can't help but think of the food concessions at sports stadiums. You know, where you go in and it costs you 10 to $15 for a hot dog and a pop? Well, Worshippers were captive consumers. The priests had their preferred vendors. And together, they pocketed a tidy little sum of money. Then there were the money exchangers. Each Jewish male was to pay a half-shekel temple tax annually. But it was only accepted in the currency of the temple. So Jewish people from all over the world would pilgrimage back to the Passover in Jerusalem. And again, there would be preferred vendors at the tables in the, in the Gentile courts, and they would have exorbitant exchange rates. And who would profit? Everyone. I mean, everyone looked the other way. The outrageous activities were allowed, pushing the Gentile Yahweh believers out of the courts, out of the area where they would worship. Their courts of worship and prayer 
were turned into an overpriced outdoor market. And how conducive is it to worship in an open market? Verse 15, He entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. See, witnessing the abuses going on, Jesus begins to chase out the profiteers, flipping over tables. It was a forceful display as he threw them out of his father's house. It was, it was a display of righteous anger. But yet in that display, he remained meek. We define meek as power under control. I mean, he could have done to them what he did to the fig tree, but he chose not to. But he did chase them out. So I believe C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia series, in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, he does us a great favor in helping us understand a little bit about Christ. This is a conversation between, and if you have not read the Chronicles of Narnia, or at least watched the movies, please do so. But this is a conversation between the children in the Chronicles of Narnia and Mr. Beaver. And Mr. Beaver is telling them about Aslan, a metaphor for Christ. Here's the conversation. Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. We do a disservice to ourselves when we make Christ into our image. Yes, He's our Savior and He's our King. But He's also Creator. And He's also going to judge this world one day. He'll judge the living and the dead. See, our world that we live in, they like a safe Jesus. But if He isn't your Lord and Savior, Jesus is not safe. So after clearing the temple courts and and, and stopping any traffic going through the area, cutting out the the disruptions from the shortcuts they would use uh, the area for, so it was a little more conducive for prayer and for worship, we read this in, in verse 16, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple, or as it says in the CSB, and he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. So the area was cleared of all the vendors, and he stopped the traffic, and then he begins to teach the people. Verse 17, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Mark records for us here two old two snippets of Old Testament passages in his teaching. The first one comes from Isaiah chapter 56, 7. And we read this. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. 
Notice, though, how Christ omits the line about sacrifices. A a curious omission. Perhaps it's a nod to something that we learn right after Lazarus' resurrection that John records for us in his gospel. Listen as I read from John chapter 11, verses 49 and 53. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus was the sacrifice that would reconcile himself, would reconcile God to both Jew and Gentile. The context here of Isaiah, the passage we're reading in Isaiah, is really important because it helps us understand how Jesus uses Isaiah as he speaks to the people. Let me read the first two verses of that chapter 56. This is what the Lord says. Preserve justice and do what is right, for my salvation is coming soon, and my righteousness will be revealed. Happy is the person who does this, the Son of Man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. And then the verses go on to proclaim that both the foreigner who loves the Lord and the eunuch who loves the Lord will have a place in his temple. Now remember that, because that's important. All the nations will have a place in his temple. And then he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So Jesus defends his actions of flipping over tables and chasing people out of the, out of the temple using these two, verse, these two sections of the Old Testament. See, the rich, religious leaders had not heeded Isaiah or Jeremiah. They did not preserve justice, nor did they do what was right. Matthew gives a bit fuller of account of his time in the temple. Between the two accounts, it's believed that Jesus spent the remainder of Monday at the temple teaching and healing people. Matthew chapter 21, 14 through 16. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. This Monday... And the triumphal entry were not lost on the corrupt chief priests 
and of the corrupt scribes and Pharisees. They understood exactly what was going on. Charles Swindle summarizes it well when he writes this. They understood who Jesus claimed to be, and they recognized his message from Old Testament Scripture. They weren't merely offended. They became sufficiently enraged to seek his destruction. They feared his influence because of the adoring multitudes. They feared the penetrating truth of his message, and they feared his ability to expose their sin. And the response of the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees comes to us in verses 18 and 19 of Mark 11. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because of all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. Wow. What a Monday. What a day that would have been to witness. What a Monday. I want us to focus on a couple of thoughts for a second from Isaiah. From Isaiah 56 where we read, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come. Elements that were were missing from the religious life of Israel. See, the, the structure created by the religious elites promoted wealth for the priests and their cronies, not true worship of Yahweh. The religious system had become xenophobic and proudly so. Unconcerned about being a light to the nations around it. The foundation of faith had been replaced by a work-based cornerstone. How far had Israel strayed? But how far has the North American church strayed? See, the world's view of God is tainted due to the bride of Christ that has chosen not to live out the tenets of faith. Monday, the Passion Week, is and remains a good reminder for the church how to live. See, the Monday points us back to a guide given to Israel long ago through the prophet Micah. And Micah's word stands the test of time. It's still applicable 2,700 years after it was written for us. Micah 6.8 Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you. To act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. How powerful are those verses? Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. That Monday was full of varied emotions. And as dusk settles, as dusk settles, Jesus leaves the city, retreating back to Bethany. And the next morning, He'll be back on that road again, 
traveling to Jerusalem, passing by that same fig tree from the day before. Look with me to verses 20 through 25 of Mark 11. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt it in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass and it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have and you receive it and it will be yours. And whatever you, wherever you stand praying, forgive if anything, if if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you and your trespasses. The disciples were astonished. They were astonished at the dried up fig tree. See, the tree represents the nation of Israel, who long ago had substituted their faith in God, in something other than following his path. See, rather than depending on God, the political leaders had placed their faith in trees and alliances of nations around them and with the nations around them. And consequently, they began to act like the nations around them, reflecting what was going on there. Rather than being a lighthouse The nation was reflecting the light of the other nations. They had become godless. They had a veneer of faith, but they were not possessors of faith. They were posers. In a few days from then, Israel would reject their Messiah by lifting him up on a cross, an act of faithlessness, then Israel in return would be set aside, would be cursed. They would not bear fruit anymore until the Messiah returns. And it's here that Jesus takes an opportunity to teach a lesson on faith and prayer. Well, what is faith? Well, Hebrews 11.1. 1, now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen. See, the object of faith is God and His promises. An example of this can be found in Genesis 15. God promises Abraham descendants that would be countless. Verse 6 of that chapter, Abraham believed believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. In Romans chapter 4, we read this. And he did not waver, Abraham, in unbelief at God's promises, but was strengthened in his faith, and he gave glory to God, because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was credit to him was not written for Abraham alone, but for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him 
who raised Jesus from the dead. See, faith means putting your trust in God and having confidence that He will fulfill His promises. Now, this illustration has been around for a long time, but I'm going to use it, and I don't know where its origins come from. Faith is more than an intellectual acknowledgement. Imagine you're at Niagara Falls, and you can picture, for those that us have been there, you can picture the falls, and you can picture how far across it is and how far down it is. And there's a tightrope walker. They've stretched a cable across, and he takes a wheelbarrow, and he carefully goes from one side of the falls to the other with the wheelbarrow. He does that about four times. And then he looks out to the crowd, and he invites someone to sit in the wheelbarrow as he pushes it across the falls and back again. So at an intellectual level, you'll go, oh yeah, I've seen him do it four times. He can do this. No problem. But you're not exercising biblical faith until you're willing to get into the wheelbarrow and trust yourself to the tightrope walker. Biblical faith is more than intellectual. It's willing to say, okay, Lord, you have all my life. And you're willing to entrust it to Him. Look at verse 23. We need to touch on this. Uh, It's not stating that if you pray and you believe that you can cast something into Lake Huron. So that's not what it's saying here. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up, And thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. That's a common metaphor. You could find it in rabbinical writings from the first century. It's a reference not to having the faith to toss a mountain into the sea, but rather it's a reference to insurmountable problems. It's a reference to something that's bigger than you that you might be struggling with. Remember, Jesus himself, when asked to prove himself by doing big miracles, he refused to do so. So so why would he ask us or give us the ability to do those? Think of Matthew chapter 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, And an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So the idea here then is not to throw mountains into the sea, but when there's something big in front of you, when there's something that seems so insurmountable in your life, that we have faith in God, and we go to Him in prayer, and we ask Him to give us the wisdom in the ability to overcome these mountain-like obstacles in our lives. In 1 Thessalonians, we're encouraged to continually be in constant prayer. The verses here need to be understood in the context of Mark and in the context of the teaching of prayer in the entire Bible. Mark isn't proclaiming a name-it-and-claim-it theology. Look at verses 24 and 25. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, 
believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Jesus is encouraging us to pray and he's encouraging us to pray and to believe. I, I, I could spend hours alone. I could go into one o'clock on this. But I got some homework for you this week because I, I'm not going to keep you here that long. There's a, a great article at gotquestions.org. You just simply type into your computer, gotquestions.org, and there you can type in this. What did Jesus mean when he said, ask and you shall receive it? If, for those of our friends from Ukraine, I've included it translated in Ukrainian, staple to your sermon. For those who picked up one, it's already on the back of your sermon notes too. There are a few at the back for those who would like it. Um, I think 10 or 15 copies at the back. Uh, uh, For the rest, just type that in when you get home and uh, take some time. I want though, us to focus on a couple of things from that part of the passage, though. I want us to draw attention to a couple of principles taught here. But prayer is such a, a larger topic. We've already spent a couple of sermons over my time here on that already. But I want us to draw to two points. That we are to pray without do- doubting either God's power or His goodness. So when we pray, I know sometimes it doesn't get answered yes, But when you pray, you need to pray, never doubting God's power to answer that prayer. And regardless of the answer, never doubting God's goodness towards us. We don't see the whole picture. Secondly, it it speaks into here that if you have a grudge against anyone, you need to deal with it through forgiveness. That sin can hinder our prayers. I'm just going to use 1 Peter 3, 7 as an example. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So 1 Peter is clear here that sin, that of mistreating one's wife, not showing her honor, not respecting her as your equal, Well, that is sin, and that's going to hinder your prayers. So the overall point is sin can hinder our prayers, and we need to deal with sin in our lives, including the unwillingness to forgive a person, forgive those that we hold grudges with. And I've learned something in my short time on earth, and it's this, that oftentimes we hold grudges because of perceived wrongdoings. Not because something really happened to us, but they're perceived wrongdoings. And when we hold those type of grudges, the blame for those lays squarely on our shoulders, not on the other party. In such cases, it's not forgiveness that we need to express to someone else, but rather it's a sin that needs to be confessed. So uh, did you catch that? Often when we hold grudges, 
It's not that we need to get express forgiveness from somebody. It's that we need to be confessing sin. That the issue lie with us. And, and that's our, our last piece of homework this week. Over this coming week, I want you to examine your heart. I want you to examine if you're holding grudges against anyone. If there's something you've put up in your little backpack and you've been carrying it around for years and you need to let go of it and you need to confess it. The other party probably doesn't even know or believe they did anything because they, prob- they probably didn't in many cases. If they did, then yes, you need to go speak to them. But oftentimes it's a matter of confession. What else do we learn from this morning? Well, we learn this. As we look at Israel and its lack of, its lack of justice and mercy... I find that my heart is often saddened at leaders who abuse the congregation that they're in, where egos are stroked, where their will is imposed, not the will of God sought, where an earthly kingdom is built and not a place where Jesus Christ reigns, where pseudo-churches allow for sexual exploitation of their congregants. And in a pseudo-church, it seems to happen so easily. Where a few people control the purse springs to to their benefit. And that the name of Jesus is simply used as only a power grab. How that must grieve the heart of God. That people would treat his bride in such a manner as to abuse his bride. Oh, how far we have strained. May we truly be able to grab hold of Micah 6, 8 and understand it for our own lives. Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what is it is the Lord requires of you to act justly and to love faithfulness and to walk humbly with your God. And that's where we're going to pause our journey towards the cross this week. Until we come together next time. On a note of confession. Confession of our own sin in our own lives. Asking the Lord to reveal where we may have compromised. Where we have been acting more like a poser of faith and not a possessor of life-changing, eternity-changing faith. Let's pray. Father, we think of your church in North America this morning and how your heart must grieve. Father, we think of our own lives. As we approach Good Friday and as we approach Resurrection Sunday, May we take time to examine our own hearts and our own lives. It's so easy to allow the culture of the day into our life, to seep into our lives and to rub off on us. And then we begin to reflect the culture around us and not the light that lives in us. 
Father, as we're in this time looking forward to that Resurrection Sunday and the weeks coming, may we examine ourselves. If we're holding grudges, may your Spirit enter our hearts to point out the grudges, to clean out the trash, to renew us a, a spirit that walks with you faithfully and humbly. Thank you for your words this morning. In Christ's name, amen.